This is what God wants me to say. Um, so uh, forbid, uh, forgive me for being a little early on the celebration, but this is going to be sort of my 50th anniversary uh, word message to our congregation uh, from Psalm 60. It's hard to improve on what David writes here, and the more I thought about the historical context with what David's writing about, the more I just thought this seems like a fitting word for our congregation to hear in light of the, uh, light of the 50th anniversary as well. So, you might be saying, well, what does Psalm 60 have to do with our 50th anniversary? Well, I hope that by the end of the sermon, you will be able to understand that a little bit. Now, what's helpful about uh, Psalm 60 is that it gives us the context of when it was written. Um, above verse 1 in your Bibles, you will see something that we call a subscript. Um, it's, a, it's a description. Not all Psalms have these, but many Psalms do where they describe the historical situation in which David is writing this psalm. And I want to read, at least in my Bible, in the ESV translation, what we have uh, above verse 1 in Psalm 60 as a subscript. We read, To the choir master, this is intended to be sung, according to Shushan Eduth, a mictum of David, that was likely a liturgical or musical reference, for instruction, that's the purpose of the psalm. Now the historical context. When he strove with Aram Naharim and with Aram Zobah, and when Joab on his return struck down 12,000 12, of Edom in the Valley of Salt. Now the historical context is what we preached last week, 2 Samuel 8, verses 13 and 14. That's where we get the reference that we read at the beginning that Bobby read for us about David's military victories. And this psalm was written after some of Israel's greatest battles and victories. Now, we don't get many vic details, as we saw last week, of these great battles, but it seems clear from 2 Samuel 8 that these were tremendous gains for the people of Israel. They were tremendous victories under King David and his general Joab. And yet, the victories described in 2 Samuel 8 do not mention the kind of setbacks that are lamented in Psalm 60. It reminds us that in 2 Samuel 8, the historical record is somewhat condensed. That was a summary of David's 40 years of reigning over Israel. It wasn't all great. It wasn't all smooth sledding and easy going. Rather, although those successes were real, they weren't always immediate. I like to I'll put it this way. 2 Samuel 8 gives us the Instagram story of the events. Right? We get the pretty version. The victories and the celebrations. Psalm 60 gives us real life. The struggle that was really there all along. That doesn't always make the headlines. But nevertheless is an integral part of why the victory even happened. Now, the title of our psalm announces that this psalm was written after some great military victories in 2 Samuel 8, but it opens with lines of rejection and despair. See, Israel's continued life in the land of Israel was under constant threat from Gentile neighbors, even when David was king. Aram was the region to the north and east of Israel in David's day. 
It may have been that David heard that Aram had had its back turned and David tried to catch the nation off guard. Well, apparently, while David and his army were fighting these nations in the north, the Edomites attacked Israel from the south. That's the reference in the superscript about Joab, the leader of David's army. Joab had gone north and then had to return south to address Edom. Initially, it seems the Edomites were having success against Israel. David takes these initial defeats at the hands of the Edomites as evidence that God had, in fact, in anger, rejected Israel and broken down their defenses against the enemy. David uses the strong language of God's judgment here, as God has apparently rejected his people in his anger and forced them into hardship as perhaps a judgment against them for their sin. Psalm 60 then gives us a remarkable window into the fears and uncertainties of that moment. It comes in the dark moment when David has been caught off guard by Edom, suffering an unnerving, perhaps even devastating setback, a first wave of losses, so to speak. David and the nation are undone, and in their shock and in their embarrassment and in their fear, they feel rejected by God. You know, sometimes the kingdom of God suffers setbacks. Under the terms of the Old Covenant, the time in the Old Testament in which Psalm 60 was written, Israel was called by God to maintain their presence in the land by being a source of blessing to the rest of the world, which often came, at least in Israel's better days, by making the other nations their subjects. But under the New Covenant, we as Christians are not limited to one theocratic nation like Israel was. We recognize our task is to fulfill what Israel was called to do and be, which is summarized in 1 Peter 2.9, where Peter tells us, you, New Testament church, using the language of Israel, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So we take up their mantle and carry it forward. But God's process of conquering the Gentiles is not the way it was in David's day, subduing them through military warfare, but rather now, as we saw last week, to bring the gospel and subdue them by God's grace to the lordship of King Jesus, not with military might and force, but with the power of the word of God and the spirit of God. We go, we make disciples, we baptize, and we teach. Teach all people who are disciples to obey the Lord Jesus Christ. However, even though our context is different, 2 Samuel 8 is not the same as the Great Commission of Matthew 28, this psalm has much to teach us about what kingdom advancement will look like for us as a congregation. What will the kingdom of God look like in, as we work and labor together the next 50 years? What timeless lessons for our mission as a church, might we draw from Psalm 60? Well, I guarantee one thing. We will face kingdom setbacks, and we need to be prepared for how we will respond when we do. How do we respond to those kingdom setbacks? I've got five points this morning from Psalm 60 of how we face and respond to setbacks in the kingdom of God when things aren't going the way we want them to go. When it seems like all is not roses, all is not great. God's promises are big, God's gospel is powerful, but it doesn't seem to be looking that way. Number one, look in at ourselves. 
look in at ourselves. Let's read verses 1 to 3 again. O God, you have rejected us, broken our defenses. You have been angry. O restore us. You've made the land to quake. You've torn it open. Repair its breaches, for it totters. You've made your people see hard things. You've given us wine to drink that made us stagger. Now, there has been some sort of national defeat or calamity where the land was devastated and the people are put in disarray. They feel rejected. They feel confused. They feel disoriented. They feel made to stagger. They've been humbled in the face of great victories. And Israel is left with questions. What's going to happen now? Is Edom going to win the next battle? Are they going to march on Jerusalem and take us over? Will Edom overthrow the nation? Has God rejected his people? David knew that when the Lord fought for Israel, victory was assured. If there was defeat, it was likely because of something that was wrong in the people themselves, something that was provoking God's displeasure. Therefore, David appealed to what he believed to be the ultimate cause, not the immediate cause. God often allowed kingdom setbacks because of the sin of his people. Now, referring back to 1 Peter 2, which I just quoted a few minutes ago, where does Peter place the power for our evangelism? That is, the power for us to be his people, to be a holy nation, a royal priesthood, that we might declare his marvelous deeds. He says in verses 11 and 12, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Or what Jesus said in Matthew 5, which is likely where Peter learned this. Matthew 5, 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Where does the glory to God go, come from? It comes from the life the people of God are living. In this way, our Christian lives should be more like a window than a mirror. Our lives should provide an opportunity for people to look at us and see the glorious character of God rather than a reflection of their own God-rejecting worldliness. Now, I don't think there are many essential books that every Christian should read apart from the Bible. But one is pretty near the top of that list for me, and that is Holiness by J.C. Ryle. In it, he draws out the link between our personal holiness and our effectiveness in advancing the gospel. Here's what he says. Quote, we must be holy because this is the most likely way to do good to others. We cannot live to ourselves only in this world. Our lives will always be doing either good or harm to those who see them. They are a silent sermon which all can read. It is sad indeed when they are a sermon for the devil's cause and not for God's. I believe that far more is done for Christ's kingdom by the holy living of believers than we are at all aware of. There is a reality about such living which makes men feel and obliges them to think. It carries a weight and influence with it which nothing else can give. It makes religion beautiful and draws men to consider it like a lighthouse seen afar off. The day of judgment will prove that many besides husbands have been won without the word by a holy life. 1 Peter 3.1 You may talk to people about the doctrines of the gospel, and few will listen and still fewer understand. But your life is an argument that none can escape. 
I believe there's far more harm done by unholy and inconsistent professors, that is Christians, than we are at all aware of. Such men are among Satan's best allies. They pull down by their lives what ministers build with their lips. They cause the chariot wheels of the gospel to drive heavily. They supply the children of this world with a never-ending excuse for remaining as they are. I grieve to be obliged to write such things, but I fear that Christ's name is too often blasphemed because of the lives of Christians. Let us take heed lest the blood of souls should be required at our hands. For murder of souls by inconsistency and loose walking, good Lord, deliver us. Oh, for the sake of others, if for no other reason, let us strive to be holy. This is where David begins in a psalm. Lord, you've rejected us. What have we done? Who have we become? Notice where J.C. Ryle in that quote I just read for you turns at the end of that quote to solve the problem. Where does he say? Good Lord, help us. Deliver us. This is the same way David responds in Psalm 60. In the face of his own kingdom setback, the first thing David does is go to God. David begins with, oh God, and then he says, you, six times. And he does so not with his finger pointed to heaven in accusation, but with his hands spread prostrate on his knees. Oh God, you, 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 you. He's humbled. He's not arrogant. David does not come at God in cynicism, but he humbles himself and he says, God, have you rejected us? Have you been angry with us as your people? You've broken down our defenses. The land's been torn open and made to quake. We're like drunk men staggering in the dark. And what does David do? Restore us, O God. Repair us, O God. Fix us. If in some way God has caused the defeat of Israel, it did not discourage David from appealing to God that his favor be restored. And dear ones, I think that in light of our 50th anniversary, this is always a good place for us to start. You know, in the midst of our 50th anniversary celebration, we can sometimes think that there, that, there, that there is no rot present in Heritage Baptist Church. God has blessed us. God has helped us. But let's not be so thoughtless as to think that or arrogant as to think that. We don't need to go on a witch hunt and start wondering and being cynical and suspicious. But nevertheless, we need to ask ourselves, am I all that God has called me to be as a believer? In my own personal life, am I taking my sin seriously? When was the last time I confessed sin, repented of sin, said I'm sorry to God for my sin? Am I, letting, am I having less warfare with sin now than I did when I was first a Christian? Dear, dear ones, that's the death knell of our church. If we don't fight sin together as a congregation, we will not have a congregation in 50 years. The only reason we have been given a congregation for 50 years is because there has been some measure of genuine repentance among us for those 50 years. And God's presence, God's saving, sanctifying presence has kept us. Let's not give that up. Is HBC as faithful in witness and evangelism and mission as we could be? No. Is it perhaps because we're not as holy as we could be? Maybe. In what areas of your life is there present, consistent, worldly compromise right now? What actions and attitudes do we consistently indulge that resemble more of the works of the flesh than the fruit of the Spirit? Are we looking for opportunities to open our lives, our mouths, our hearts, and our homes to others? 
Let's take inventory of these things and in the shadow of the cross, bring them out into the light before God. Let's confess them, let's own them, and let's ask him to restore, renew, and revive us. That'd be a great place to start. That's not the only place we start. We don't just look in at ourselves, but secondly, we look back to the gospel. We look back to the gospel. Look at verses 4 and 5. David writes and prays, You have set up a banner for those who fear you, that they may flee to it from the bow. That your beloved ones may be delivered, give salvation by your right hand and answer us. David refers to this banner. He says, you have set a banner over us. Now, one of the functions of a banner in the ancient world was to identify ownership. God raises a banner over his people, not just to give them a rallying point to gather together as one people, but to identify them as his people. Think of the football team marching or charging out onto the field, leading with a large flag, bearing the symbol of the school. That's a banner that identifies who they are with. So God raises a a banner over his people as a reminder that we are the beloved people of God and that God will listen to us and deliver us. God has set a banner over us as his people, a symbol, something that his people may flee to for refuge. It's an offer of sanctuary, a rallying place, a place to gather and hide from the attacks of the enemy. The picture here is of God's people in a panicked retreat under heavy fire as their defenses have failed and the enemy is in hot pursuit. And as people who are scattered and fleeing, the first thing they need is to look up and find some sort of banner, some sort of rallying point. Where am I supposed to go? What am I supposed to do? A place to gather together and be prepared and protected while a counterattack is planned. And that's what this verse identifies. God has given his people a place to rally and a place to be protected. See, when we, were, when we are discouraged in our effectiveness for the kingdom of God, the first thing we need to remember is that God has placed a banner over us as his people. We are beloved. The motivation for all of our kingdom work is to dwell deeply on what God has done in Christ for us. The gospel we share is the gospel we need. The gospel we desire others to experience is the gospel we desire to experience in a fuller way. We aren't offering good advice. We're offering good news. We aren't offering a second chance. We're offering a second Adam. We aren't offering solutions. We're offering a Savior. Paul sums it up best, I think, in 2 Corinthians 5, 14 to 21. He says, for the love of Christ controls us. But we have, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
Now, dear ones, what motivates us, what motivated Paul to share the gospel? The gospel. (laughs) The gospel is the only sufficient motivation to ever share the gospel. The love of Christ compels us. He died for us so that we would no longer live for ourselves, but live for him. We are a new creation. We've been reconciled to God. Our sins have been counted to Christ. We are making God's appeal on Christ's behalf, imploring others to experience the reconciliation that we've experienced. God made Christ to become sin for us. That is to treat him as our sins deserve so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That is treated as Christ deserves. We get to share this message. What a privilege. What a joy. Our sin that we talked about in the first couple of verses, looking at verses 1 and 2, doesn't end there. It doesn't stop there. We don't look in at ourselves and then walk away in defeat. No, we look in at ourselves and then look up to the great banner that is over our lives. Jesus Christ has lived and died for me. And so when we're feeling defeated and in retreat from the attack of the enemy of our souls, we need a rallying place. We need a place where we can gather with God's people and remember that we are his. We need a place of refuge. We need a place of regrouping. Dear ones, that's why we're here this morning. That's what the church is. When we gather together for corporate worship on the Lord's Day, the Lord again sets a banner over us as his people and claims us again as his own. We come each Sunday morning to this rallying point where God gathers us, reclaims us, and sends us back out. Into the, ba- into the battle under the banner of the gospel. So that's the second thing. Look in at ourselves first, but then look back to the gospel. Thirdly, look down to God's word. Look down to God's word. We are told in verses 6 through 8, verse 6 begins, God has spoken. God has spoken. God has said something. Now what has he said? Look at verses 6 and 7. God has spoken in his holiness. With exaltation, I will divide up Shechem and portion out the vale of Succoth. Gilead is mine. Manasseh is mine. Ephraim is my helmet. Judah is my scepter. Moab is my wash basin. Upon Edom I cast my shoe. Over Philistia I shout in triumph. Now, I know those are names of lots of places in and around Israel. But based on what we saw last week in 2 Samuel 8, what's the point? There's victory over those places because they belong to the Lord. These verses mention parts of the land that God has promised to his people, going all the way back to Jacob. Shechem's in Canaan. Succoth was across the Jordan, were the first places that Jacob settled when he returned from Aram of all places. Gilead is across the Jordan. Manasseh spans the Jordan. Ephraim and Judah are north and south, compromise the heart of the promised land. Shechem and Succoth are the areas on the west and east of the Jordan River. Israel was on both sides of the Jordan River between the Sea of Galilee in the north and the Dead Sea in the south. And Succoth, which was on the east side of the Jordan, was surrounded by enemy nations and always in danger of being cut off from the main part of Israel, which was between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea. But God is saying in these verses that he is Lord over both areas of land. And he will give them to whomever he wishes. Now, what is the effect of David rehearsing these things in prayer in Psalm 60? 
He's reminding God of his unbreakable commitment to Israel and that God would not let Edom take the land away from them. In verse 7, God is claiming his people as his own. He says, Gilead's mine, Manasseh's mine, Ephraim's my helmet, Judah's my scepter. This is God's way of saying, all of my people belong to me in all their tribes and in all their territories. Ephraim and Judah have been at war with each other following the death of Saul. And now Ephraim is God's helmet, a mighty force to conquer. But Judah's God's scepter, his chosen instrument to rule his people. He's got a tribe from the line of Judah on the throne in King David. There's nothing better for a believer to hear in times of doubt and distress than God say, you're mine. You're mine. And even more so, God calls the neighboring lands his. When God speaks, he reminds Israel that he owns not only them, but all the land around them, and he rules over all. So as scared as David may be about the prospect of Edom coming to invade them from the south, Edom does not make God sweat one bit. He's placing these enemies of God's people in the positions of household slaves who are going to wash their feet of conquered enemies over whom he will shout in triumph. He will wash his feet in Moab, it says. He will fling his shoe, kick off his shoes and eat them like it's just a shoe rack in the corner resting after battle's all done. And by the way, Philistia will be his too, the arch enemies of God's people. This vision of God and his power without fretting, without sweating, calmly bringing his people's foes into submission with his feet resting on their backs, is the heart of what moves David and the nation from fear to faith. Here's what John Piper says about this image. He says, picture Edom in rebellion against Yahweh and his people. Picture them mustering thousands and thousands of warriors. Picture the iron chariots, the war horses snorting and stamping, the bulging muscles and bronze skin of the mighty men, the razor-sharp swords, the awful pointed spears, the shields flashing in the sun, the unflinching countenance of seasoned soldiers, fearful, dreadful, fierce, and powerful. When God sees them coming, he sits down. God sits down to wash his feet. And then... As one would flick a fly, he tosses his shoe on Edom, and 18,000 soldiers fall. God never even looked. He scarcely heard the noise. The world sits stunned at the victory. God sits with his feet in the water. God is never ruffled. He never jerks. When attacked from behind, he's never startled. At just the right moment, he tosses his shoe, and all the enemies are crushed. He does not honor them with any nervous preparation. He has set his own schedule for the day, and he will accomplish all his purpose. The enemy may try to interrupt, but will not be able to cause the slightest pause in the washing of his feet. That's our God. Remember Psalm 2 that we've been referencing a lot as we've talked about the life of David? When all these nations are warring against the Lord and his anointed, what does God do? He laughs. He sits in heaven and laughs. You really think this is going to significantly push my kingdom agenda back? See, dear ones, it's the knowledge of God's absolute sovereignty and his powerful victory that Christ will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it that motivates all of our kingdom labor. It's not in vain. There will be 
and symbolically already are a great multitude of people, according to Revelation 5 and 7, from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation around the throne already worshiping the Lamb. The ransom has been paid for God's people among the nations. They're paid for, and God will not go back on his son's payment. He declared it in the resurrection that the nations will belong to him. His son's bleeding and dying was not in vain. And therefore, God's global mission will not abort because the debt has been paid for each of God's people everywhere around the world. John eleven fifty one to 52, Jesus put it this way. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. This is the way Jesus thinks as the shepherd. He says, I have lost sheep that are scattered throughout the world, and they will come as the Father calls them through the preaching of the gospel. And it's with this certainty that God gave the confidence that Paul needed in the midst of the persecution he was facing as he tried to take the gospel to the Gentile world. Acts 18 records some of the persecution he faced when he brought the gospel to Corinth. And he says in verses 9 to 11, The Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. Paul said, I'll get up and I'll go back in because God's got people in this city who will hear and will believe through the preaching of the gospel. Now, once we've heard God tell us you're mine, we then need to hear him say, I'm stronger than all your enemies and I will triumph over them finally and decisively and you will share in that victory. You know, in many ways, this feels like a fearful time to be a Christian as we experience more cultural marginalization and more suspicion. Not outright persecution. In some places, yes, but not necessarily nationwide. And it may never come to out-and-out, full-blown persecution. But nevertheless, the sovereignty of God gives us our only hope of success. Because without God's sovereign grace... It's impossible for any human being to ever to believe the gospel because humans are naturally and irresistibly resistant to God. They oppose him in their sin and because Satan actively works to keep us blind. But God's effectual call through the gospel makes his kingdom work invincible and sure, not just possible, but certain. So let's rest there. No matter what, the days, months, weeks, years make bring. God is on the throne and his kingdom is advancing and he will build his church. Maybe not our church, but his church we will always build. Do we pray that he builds our church? Of course. But our church is not the center of his solar system. We are part of a church that Christ is building from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation all around the world in all of human history. Fourthly, Look up to God himself. Look up to God himself in verses 9 to 11. Notice what he says, what David writes here in verse 9. Who will bring me to the fortified city? Who will lead me to Edom? 
He knows the answer to his question. He prays to God, knowing that God alone can help. When David asks who in verse 9, he knows exactly who. As David and Joab lead the armies of Israel south to face the Edomites, they have heard that they belong to the Lord and the Lord is sovereign over their enemies, but still they need to know if God is going to go with them and he's going to lead them to victory. If God had been with the armies defending southern Judah, the Edomites never would have been able to invade and break down the defenses. More troops bringing reinforcements from the north, fresh victories over the Syrians will not bring salvation to God's people. Vain is the salvation of man. Is a true reminder that both the reinforcements of David and Joab and all the things that they're bringing in terms of military might and power are vain and will not serve as any help to the people of Israel unless God is with them and granting salvation. Notice he says in verse 10, Have you not rejected us, O God? You do not go forth, O God, with our armies. O grant us help against the foe, for vain is the salvation of man. Even we, with all of our military might, David says, cannot overcome them unless you are with us. And so we pray. We look up to God. These verses serve as a sober reminder against presumption, don't they? Just because we've heard God say, you're mine, I love you, and we know that he's mightier than our enemies, doesn't mean that we just blindly march off into battle confident of victory no matter what. We need the presence, the protection, the plan, the power of the Lord for victory. Vain is the salvation of men. Vain is the ingenuity of leaders. Vain is the progress of military might. Vain is the greatest military strategy unless God is in it. In other words, we dare not go forth in our own strength. We dare not try to affect our own effectiveness. To do so is to live like Edom and not like God's people. So David will presume nothing, but he will continue to plead with the Lord for what he knows Israel needs. Without God, all the best plans and resources of the world of men are empty, useless, and vain. And this is always why the effectiveness of our congregation will be tied to its prayer life. Period. Nothing causes me, and I'm sure our other pastors, more fear and alarm than when we feel dwindling prayer. Then there's not a spirit of prayer. Prayer meetings are not attended. Prayer is not happening. It, it's, a, it's, it's a sign of decay. It's not a sign of life. And we've got to fight for it. This, 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 all this stuff is military. Y'all want a cause to believe in? You want a war to fight? You want purpose? Let's do this kind of stuff. Let's wage war in prayer for the advance of God's kingdom. All else is in vain. We look up to God because God's the only one who can make anything we do successful. If we're, if we're a Christian, we already believe in God's sovereignty because we pray. We believe that God is sovereign in salvation for two reasons. We thank him for our conversion and we pray for the conversion of others. And it's this sort of spirit that we must have. We must be always looking up to God in dependent prayer, recognizing 
that the best of plans are plans at best. And unless he blesses, all will be in vain. Fifthly and finally, let's look forward with God's help. Let's look forward with God's help. I think this, this whole Psalm 60 process that David goes through, from looking in at himself and saying, God, have we done anything wrong? To remembering the goodness of God in the, in, in the, in the banner that rests over his life and over the life of Israel. To looking down at God's word and knowing that he's sovereign and powerful. To looking up to God in prayer and asking for help. It's only right that he would conclude the psalm with hope. Verse 12, with God we shall do valiantly. It is he who will tread down our foes. Men, mount up. And they go. And they win. And they continue to win. And 2 Samuel 8 is the record. But how'd they get there? A lot of inner anguish. A lot of repentance. A lot of prayer, a lot of crying out to God in the midst of distress, a lot of believing the gospel and hoping against hope in the God who is. David believes there will be victory over any adversaries in the future. Notice that we, he sequence. He says, we shall do valiantly because he will tread. We act in faith, but God's action is the decisive one. Our acting is important, but it's in vain unless he acts. But David is confident that he will act. And the decisiveness of God's action does not make us passive, nor do we act in our own strength, but God-informed, word-saturated, prayer-requested, faith-inspired action works here in David and in God's people by replacing fear with what? Valiancy. That is, it provides the courage that we need to keep moving forward in the kingdom of God. The sovereignty of God does not affect evangelism's necessity, urgency, or genuineness, or the sinner's responsibility to believe, but God's sovereignty makes us hopeful and active. If it makes us passive, we don't really believe God is sovereign. This is what makes us alive in the kingdom of God. This is what we were made for, to turn to him, to come to him, to listen to him, to trust in him, to ask him for help and act in faith. This is the dynamic of the Christian life. Turning to God, coming to God, listening to God, trusting in God, asking God, moving in faith in God. That is the whole dynamic of the Christian life individually and corporately again and again and again. This is what we do every day. This is the pattern for all of our days. To turn to God, to hear from Him, to trust in Him, to ask Him for help, and then ask and then act in reliance on Him. And with God and with God alone, Our next 50 years will be marvelous. I pray better than we could ever imagine. All that we could ever ask or hope. As God moves forward with us, treading down all of our enemies and making them our family. As they are subdued by Christ under the power of the gospel. So what do we need? For 50 more years of mission, I know many of us, I won't be here. But I'm thinking about who's going to be here. God forbid that this church would stop with any of us. If it stops with me, I've failed. If it stops with 
any of your existing deacons, they've failed. If it stops with any of us as members, we've failed. Because our job is to take the kingdom of God into the next generation. So those who are youngest among us, we've got work to do. We've got a whole purposeful life ahead of us to live together. So what do we need for a life on mission for the kingdom of God? As we ride the emotional roller coaster of highs and lows and defeats and victories? Well, we don't live it with either paralyzing fear or poisonous presumption. But we must stand on the promises of God, looking in with repentance, relying on the love of God demonstrated in the gospel, looking up to him continually for help, looking down at his word, believing his power and sovereignty, and walking forward in faith, standing on his promises and walking in the power and presence of God. Now we gather this morning under the Lord's banner to be reminded of who our king is and what his powerful promises mean for our lives. When we gather at the Lord's table, we gather at the Lord's table so that our king can meet us, feed us, and abide with us in faith. And we go out this morning, this afternoon, this week, to face down the enemy of the world, the flesh, and the devil, and we dare not presume to do it in our own strength because we are the children of God. We need him. It's with God's powerful presence alone that we shall do valiantly, for it's he and he alone who will tread down our enemies. Let's rest there. Let's thank him for the previous half century. And as we look forward until Jesus comes back, let's never forget these Christian basics that Psalm 60 gives us, which will never outgrow. Looking in at ourselves, being mindful of our sin, repenting, believing the gospel, being bold, and recognizing that our sin does not ever have the last word in our lives. Christ always has the last word because grace is greater than our sin. And then looking down at God's word, believing his sovereignty, believing his power, believing his lordship, believing that he's king, looking up to him in prayer and moving forward in faith. And the Lord will do what seems good to him. But we will have been faithful, and that's all that matters. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word this morning. Thank you for a somewhat obscure psalm and a somewhat obscure Old Testament passage in terms of 2 Samuel 8. This little historical mention of a military victory and then a a psalm written by David. Lord, it captures so much of who we are as your people and what our job is as your church and what we're called to be and do in your kingdom. Lord, help us to appropriate these things into our lives daily to always be having these five looks, maybe not all at the same time, but regularly and consistently, believing your word, repenting of our sin, trusting in Christ, hoping in the future, because Christ is on the throne and he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Father, thank you so much for a realistic portrait of kingdom life that we get in Psalm 60. It isn't pretty, it isn't easy, but it's glorious. And it's worth giving our entire life to because Christ is worthy. And he is reigning and he is living and he has left the tomb 
and there is news to tell. We, ha- we live in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. We live in the midst of a lost and dying culture. We have friends and families and coworkers and neighbors who are walking around in darkness. Lord, make us to be faithful kingdom ambassadors, both individually and as a congregation, so that this church might be one among many of a place that is set on a hill that would flock and draw people, not because we want a big, flashy church, but because we just want people to know Jesus, and we want people to walk with him, and we want your kingdom to come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, even in Owensboro, Davis County because Owensboro Davis County belongs to Jesus. And we pray these things in the name of our risen King. Amen. Let's stand together and say,